Hello, and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by AJC. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines and help you understand what it all means for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm Sefi Kogan. And I'm Manya Brashear-Pashman. Earlier this week, during the first presidential debate, President Trump refused to condemn white supremacy. Today on this podcast, I talk to the creators of two other podcasts worth tuning into. Both shed light on the rise of white supremacy here in America, its appeal, its staying power, and its role in American politics. In 2017, while covering religion in Chicago, I interviewed Christian Piccolini, a recovering neo-Nazi who three decades earlier had been a leader of the American white supremacist movement. His journey was astounding. I could have spent another year talking to Christian. Had I done so, I would have had a much better understanding of how a wave of hate energized Americans back then and still does today. Thankfully, my colleague, Chicago journalist Odette Youssef, did spend a year talking to Christian and others from that time for the third season of Motive, a narrative podcast that debuted on Chicago's NPR affiliate last month. She's here to talk about what she learned over the past year and what she hopes listeners will take away. Now, full disclosure, Odette is also a dear friend of mine. Friend, welcome to the show. Thanks, Manya. It's great to be here. So you know I am green with envy that you thought to pursue this and also very grateful. So how did it come about for you? So I got interested in this story a year or two ago when I was working on a story that was focusing on a teacher at the Chicago Public Schools who put together a toolkit to help educational communities fight white supremacy when it shows up at schools and trying to sort of contextualize that within the history of the white supremacist movement in the United States. Mm -hmm. So when I was interviewing this teacher, she told me that she really had actually been doing this anti-racist work for three decades. And the reason was that she had grown up on the southwest side of Chicago during a time that a guy named Christian Picciolini (laughs) was actively working to grow the ranks of neo-Nazi skinheads. I actually had met Christian socially um, a few years before that, but I didn't know that much of his story. Hmm. So after I interviewed this teacher, her name is Nora Flanagan, I went and I interviewed Christian. And he revealed to me probably the same very interesting history that he revealed to you, Manya, when you interviewed him. Mm -hmm. And it planted in my head this question of why was Chicago fertile ground for recruiting youth in the 1980s and the 1990s to the neo-Nazi ideology? Mm -hmm. And that's really what kind of set me off on this whole path. Okay. All right. So, you know, one of the things that stands out still in my mind, perhaps because I have children and I feel like I work all the time, is that Christian said he really fell into this. His parents were working all the time, trying to make ends meet. They weren't paying attention to him. He was vulnerable. He wanted to get back at them. And he also was just searching for a place where he felt like he belonged. So I just thought that that was (laughs) such an innocuous way of getting into such a vile movement. I mean, can you talk a little bit about who is vulnerable, who did this movement target, who does this movement target now? Yeah. So Christian was quite young when he was recruited. He was 14 years old. And at the time, we saw that that age range, you know, 14 to 18 years old, tended to be 
the age range that was targeted by people. And, you know, these were kids that, you know, were hanging out on the streets. We spoke to many skinheads, not all of them necessarily who were recruited into the neo-Nazi movement, but people Mm -hmm. who were what came to be known as anti-racist skinheads as well. Mm-hmm. who fell into the scene just because they were sort of disaffected youth. I spoke to many people who were runaways from home, people who had been kicked out of their homes. You know, some people actually had great relationships with their parents, but they got into punk music because of its sort of anti-authoritarian message. Mm-hmm. Um, so these were kids that were sort of looking for another way. And these were some savvy organizers who came from the white supremacist movement and saw those kids as ripe for recruiting. This material really makes for great radio because punk music really does play a huge role in this movement. Obviously, the lyrics differentiate, right, distinguish between the the neo-Nazi skinhead movement and and anti-racist. This was actually a discovery for the movement, Mm. you know, that music could be an effective vector to transmit the ideology because you didn't necessarily have to get into the music because you liked what they were saying. You got into the music because you liked the tune, but then over time, you might start adopting the ideology. You mentioned the anti-racist skinheads. Can you talk a little bit about the skinhead movement broadly and kind of explain how it morphed into something once the Nazis arrived on the scene. So the roots of the skinhead movement actually go back to the UK. And there's a lot of writing about how sort of the early skinheads in the UK in the late 60s and in the 70s actually were somewhat diverse. You had, you know, West Indian skinheads, people listened to ska and reggae music. So it didn't start necessarily as an explicitly racist movement. What happened in the United States was a little different from the UK in some ways. So in the US, the punk scene actually was here. And out of that, the skinhead movement in the US kind of grew as an offshoot. And so the first skinheads in the US and in Chicago, which is where I've really focused my reporting, were not racist at all. You know, it was a very diverse scene. I had sort of the delight of like speaking with many black skinheads who were here in Chicago. They have their own very rich and interesting history and their own sort of unique motivators in some cases for what Mm. brought them into the movement. And it really was a place just where people were united because they loved the music. But what happened is there were some people who came from the white supremacy music, had heard some of these white power bands from the UK The most notable among them at the time was a band called Screwdriver and began basically distributing that music in the skinhead scene in the United States. And so that was sort of them infiltrating what was a non-racist scene to plant the seeds and they used that music. And then eventually over time, you know, there were bands in the U.S., homegrown white power bands um, that sort of further propelled the, the movement. Mm-hmm. And you even told me offline that you even interviewed a Jewish skinhead. There was a Russian Jewish skinhead who was uh, part of the scene here, and he had run away from home. Um, he was just a teenager on the streets, and actually he found his way into the skinhead scene because the owner of one of the popular dance clubs here called Medusa's took him in, and he took a, a bunch of um, guys in that had been sort of wandering And they would work at the bar and they got really into the scene. 
I mean, it's so funny because like when I interviewed him, you know, he still is angry at the Nazi skinheads. It was really formative years for many of these people. It mm-hmm. shaped the decisions that they made. It shaped the people that they became. And it still runs really deep, I think, in many of these people. There's this famous Blues Brothers clip from the movie uh, talking about the Illinois Nazis. But there's actually truth to that clip. Can you talk a little bit about how Illinois really was a hub for Nazi activity in the 1970s? Sure. This clip is the Blues Brothers are in their car. They're like stopped, you know, in front of a bridge where there's this demonstration of a bunch of white guys in Nazi uniforms, you know, standing in line and, you know, declaring their whatever allegiance to Adolf Hitler and they're facing a crowd of angry protesters who, who are basically saying, Nazi scum, get off our streets. Mm-hmm. They're presented in sort of this ridiculous way, like these old guys that have nothing better to do than dress in costumes. But that happened in Illinois. <laughs> in 1977, there was a Nazi organization that was based on the southwest side of Chicago that fought to the Supreme Court their right to demonstrate. Um, They were threatening to do this in Skokie, a northwest suburb of Chicago that was home to thousands of Holocaust survivors. That was the sort of thing that Nazis in Chicago did at the time. They would choose something that they knew would be provocative, that they knew would uh, get national headlines, and this one certainly did. The fact that there was an organization in the city of Chicago that openly flew a giant Nazi flag on a major street just shows that there was, in some parts of the city, a tolerance for those kind of views. Mm -hmm. You talk about Clark Martell. That's a pretty key central character in this series. You refer to him as the Johnny Appleseed of hate or patient zero, if we want to talk about it in terms of a virus, which I think is a very apt comparison. Why did he pick Chicago? So Clark was a young man who had grown up in Billings, Montana. Mm -hmm. And we looked up, you know, his criminal record. And there was a really interesting excerpt from an interview that he had done with a probation officer Mm -hmm. in which he said that he had read Mein Kampf as a youth and it really spoke to him. Mm. And shortly after that, he decided he wanted to move to Illinois to join the Nazi party. Mm. And that's where he sort of fell under the tutelage of these older sort of neo-Nazis that were there. But he was a younger guy, and he was the one that uh, started selling knockoff copies of screwdriver cassettes, and he was the one that started to go to the clubs in Chicago to spread that message. And then Clark also recruited Christian Picciolini. That's right. Personally. And then what was his role in the reenactment of Kristallnacht in Chicago? And you spoke with a lot of folks from that era who experienced that horror. So in early November of 1987, there was a spree of vandalism on the northwest side of Chicago, Mm -hmm. which has been sort of in the city limits. It's been sort of the hub for the Orthodox Jewish community. And there were about a dozen institutions that were vandalized, um, most of them Jewish. And there were swastikas that were painted on synagogues, windows were broken, It was very disturbing. Mm -hmm. And in the end, 
There was only one person who was convicted in this event, even though the police at the time believed that there were more than one, you know, there were several people that were involved. The person that was convicted was a member of the neo-Nazi skinhead crew that Clark Martell had created in Chicago. Now, Clark himself was never, you know, indicted for this. He was never charged for this. Um, to my knowledge, he was never involved with it. But it did provide the opening um, that police had been looking for for quite some time to try to see if there were any other crimes that they could actually pin on Clark, yeah. which they actually did successfully do. And then in the most recent episode um, that just aired, you talk about how there really was, I would say this was the most troubling revelation, but you talk about this infiltration strategy that the white supremacists really employed under Christian, you know, back 30 years ago, but is really kind of materializing today. And the title of the episode really sums it up, Boots to Suits. But can you talk a little bit about what that means? Yeah. So the arc of the neo-Nazi skinheads was pretty short. We started with telling the story of how they came to be in Chicago. And then shortly after they showed up in Chicago, it started spreading across the country. There were thousands of neo-Nazi skinheads. And that may not, you know, seem like a huge number overall, but the violence that they were committing on the streets was brazen. Over time, they started to attract enough law enforcement attention and scrutiny that there were some leaders in the movement that started to say, okay, well, this isn't working out for us anymore. We need to try a different strategy. And so the word went out, grow your hair, take off your boots, put on a suit, and get a job with your police department. Go join the military. Go run for public office. You know, you need to be less explicitly racist in what you say. Find a message that might appeal to your average uh, American who uh, may recoil at, you know, seeing a Nazi tattoo on your arm. Find a message instead that might appeal for them. Maybe the Confederate flag would be a more uh, acceptable symbol in some parts of the country. So what is the goal of this movement uh, today? You know, we're focusing on the organized movement, which is the most extreme of the white supremacists, right? I would say they have two goals. First, they want a white ethno state. You know, there's a term that we often see written in news articles called white nationalism, which mm -hmm. you may sort of think is like, oh, they want America, they want this democracy, but they only want it for white people. They don't want democracy. They want an overthrowing of the US government so they could institute their own ethnostate. That's one goal. And the other goal is to really normalize and mainstream the tenets of their ideology. And in researching for this podcast, I went back to some archival publications of white supremacist groups back in the 80s and earlier. And in those publications, writers were talking about cutting off immigration, stopping legal and illegal immigration, things like that, that now have come to be just another policy position that you could have as an American. But at the time, they were considered somewhat extreme. And so the mainstreaming of the ideology is something that I think there hasn't been much attention paid to that. And I think that it is helpful to know what the history of some of these ideas actually is. How does the QAnon movement compare? I'll preface this by saying that I'm not an expert in QAnon. 
but I've read what probably many of your listeners have read, sort of the basic tenets of what QAnon believers think. Mm -hmm. And the similarities to the neo-Nazi ideology are just stunning. (laughs) This discussion about a deep state, right? Well, they had a different name for that back when people were avowed neo-Nazis, and that was the ZOG, Mm -hmm. the Zionist Occupational Government. It's the same thing. You know, this whole theory that children are being trafficked or even worse, you know, if you go back and you read some of the literature that the neo-Nazi skinheads used to read in their canon, Mm -hmm. things like the Turner Diaries, you know, there are themes of cannibalism and of the trafficking of young white children that show up in the literature even back then. And so what I've read when I've read about, you know, QAnon is basically just sort of a a little bit of rebranding of the same old ideas. Well, Odette, this is fascinating. I can't wait to hear the the next four episodes of the series. And I really appreciate you coming on the show. Fun fact, it was someone at AJC who introduced us many years ago. So that's right. Shout out to my colleague, Emily Sola, for doing such a fine matchmaking job. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you for having me. The parallels between American politics in 2020 and in the 1980s are striking, as are similarities with the campaign of 2016. Then-candidate Donald Trump declined to condemn support from former KKK Grand Wizard David Duke. Josh Levine is the executive editor of Slate and the creator of the latest season of the podcast series Slow Burn. Over six episodes, Josh takes us back to his home state of Louisiana to tell the story of how David Duke rose to political stardom in the 1980s culminating with a presidential run in 1988. Josh is with us now to discuss the rise of the renowned white supremacist. Josh, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you for doing this really incredible examination of Mr. Duke. Let's start with how it came about. Your family goes back generations in Louisiana. Your great-grandfather immigrated there from Eastern Europe. Can you tell us a little bit about your heritage and why that made you want to explore Duke and his influence? Sure. Yeah. The story that I tell in the first episode of the podcast is about my great-grandfather, Lewis Wright, who came to Eunice, Louisiana in the early 20th century and had a store there, a store that my family had for generations in this small town in central Louisiana. And he felt welcome there. My grandmother, who grew up there, they all had a pretty great upbringing in this small town, despite being one of the very few Jewish families in Eunice. But, you know, there were times when I was growing up where I felt like Louisiana might not be a place that was welcoming for me Mm -hmm. and my family and people like me. There were times when I did feel welcome and I felt like I had a great community in my hometown of New Orleans and in the state you know, one of the reasons that I was interested in telling this story was because that feeling of potential dislocation, of uncertainty, of anxiety was really profoundly important to me when I was a kid. It was the first time I really had a political consciousness. And I had kind of a child's understanding of what was going on with Duke and his movement. And it's something that now that I'm an adult and a journalist, I wanted to go back and actually explore in more detail what happened and why it happened. 
You talk about, if I recall correctly, the sight of Duke kind of working a crowd at LSU's Tiger Stadium. And that really was a high point of where you question whether Louisiana was truly your home. I think maybe it was more the crowd's reception of Duke than Duke himself. But can you talk a little bit about that moment? Yeah. So my family had season tickets to LSU football going back a really long time. And so I really loved LSU football, continue to love LSU football to this day, and would go to the games when I was a a kid. And you have this feeling when you're a sports fan of belonging to this community and everybody in the stadium, you know, if it's a home stadium, you're all rooting for the same people, you're all rooting against the same people as well. So there's this fellow feeling and, you know, we're all here and we're all on the same team, as it were. And so when I saw David Duke making the rounds at Tiger Stadium, that was profoundly disturbing, both because it's David Duke, but also because of the reception that he got there in the sense like, okay, maybe this actually isn't my community. Maybe, you know, the fact that this appears to be David Duke's base, that a lot of the people in this this stadium, that was kind of a revelation to me. Mm. Well, he's an LSU alum. And you talk about how, in fact, that was one of his first platforms was a space on LSU's campus called Free Speech Alley. And as you were talking about that and and interviewing a student who had been the moderator of Free Speech Alley, I, I couldn't help but think about his social media platform. And also, I'm just curious if that moderator that you interviewed ever kind of looked back with hindsight wishing he hadn't allowed hate speech to be (laughs) shouted in that space. Did you talk a little bit about that? I mean, there were debates at LSU at the time about whether he should be allowed to speak. He was known on campus as the Nazi um, Mm -hmm. because of his, you know, his neo-Nazi ideology, expressions of belief and interest in in national socialism. So it wasn't any kind of secret who he was or what he Mm -hmm. supported at that time. But I think Mm -hmm. the thing that's important to understand is that we're in a very different place as a society right now on these issues than we were in the late 60s and early 70s. Kind of coming out of Berkeley, the free speech movement was a lot more absolutist back Mm -hmm. then than it is today. And the values were, at that moment, it was considered very important to allow any kind of speech, even speech, um, especially speech that was considered abhorrent or that was not normative. And Mm -hmm. so Duke was, I think, taking advantage of this atmosphere where it was considered hypocritical for people on the left to be intolerant of speech in that way. But it is a different conversation now where it is now, I think, considered to be more of a typical view that there are certain kinds of speech and certain kinds of speakers that should not be given a platform. We decided not to interview Duke for the podcast, and I explained why, because I wanted to be transparent about that. We felt like we didn't want to give him a platform. We felt like we were airing his views and giving them, like, if you listen to Slow Burn, if you listen to the season— There'll be no doubt about who David Duke is and what he believes. Well, we also included his responses to various allegations against him. So it felt Mm -hmm. like we were being fair journalistically. But Mm -hmm. at the same time, I don't think that that's necessarily a straightforward or easy decision. It's the decision that we made. And I feel good about that decision. Mm -hmm. And I think it's something that whether you're in a newsroom or you're at a college, like it's things that need to be talked about and discussed and thought through. 
Well, you do talk about a lot of people gave him a lot of platforms. You know, you get to the probably about the third or fourth episode. I certainly didn't need you to identify David Duke. I recognized his voice quite clearly in the audio. And I'm just curious, did you circle back to any of the news anchors, journalists, people who did give him a platform to ask, do you regret doing that? So, you know, the people that I, that I guess I did kind of have the most back and forth on about decision-making around platforming or not platforming Duke were the journalists at the New Orleans Times-Picayune mm-hmm. who went through different cycles in terms of how they approached Duke, going from not covering him at all and thinking that giving him oxygen would be a bad idea. Right. And then when Duke actually becomes a serious candidate for the U.S. Senate and for the governorship of Louisiana, then they made a different decision about, okay, now we need to cover him less as a politician and more as a threat. Right. There was that debate with Jesse Jackson, him and Jesse Jackson, and moderated by Steve Edwards in Chicago. And I just, I thought that was fascinating, listening to the audio from that and wondering, would that happen today? Yeah. So I found it surprising that Jesse Jackson, who at that time in 1977 was considered to be probably the leading Black civil rights activist in America in that Mm -hmm. moment, that he would consent to doing this debate and by implication kind of raising David Duke to his level, like they were representing different sides in in a debate, which is, you know, I think a very strong argument could be made that that was a mistake by Jesse Jackson to do that. Mm -hmm. But Jackson does make a thoughtful argument and presentation in the show. Mm -hmm. He answers that very question. And he says that at a moment like this, and this is in 1977, when Mm -hmm. there are economic doldrums, then there are white people in America are susceptible to demagoguery, like what Duke is representing. And so Jackson thought that it was important to speak to Duke's potential acolytes directly and to confront Mm -hmm. these ideas directly. Yeah. Well, that audio alone was riveting. I I think (laughs) that was one of the highlights for me was listening to that, especially in the context of today's current events. So I thought that was fascinating. And Jackson sounds very like it sounds like the stuff he's saying is in conversation with what's going on in the world today. I mean, he says the phrase he says the phrase economic anxiety. I mean, (laughs) I think one big lesson in reporting this out, and I hope one that people get from listening to the series Mm -hmm. is that stuff that feels kind of like it's never happened before and is unprecedented, that there's historical precedent for most everything that we live through. And it's important to find those stories and understand that, you know, other people have lived through a lot of what we're living through now before. Yes. Now, let's just get back to David Duke. So he's not just a former Louisiana politician. He was quite a phenomenon there. He won a state house seat. He ran for the U.S. Senate. He ran for governor. We can't really forget his bid for the White House. Um, While most of these were unsuccessful, he did get votes. So why did people vote for him? I think there are different reasons. I think that you couldn't vote for Duke and not understand who or what you were voting for. I think his views on uh, his anti-Semitic views and his racist views are very clear. So whether, you know, some people voted for him because they liked what he was saying on those issues and like what he stood for. Some people, I think, were voting for him thinking that he had changed or despite that, but still knowing who he'd been in the past and who he was in, in the present. I do think that 
a lot of times, you know, throughout history and any place in the world that people just want someone to blame for their problems. Mm. And Duke kind of had, you know, put a name on it and put a label on it that, you know, the reason that you white people of Louisiana are suffering is because these, you know, black people are getting are on welfare because black people are getting these government contracts. And whether it was because the white people of Louisiana that voted for him blamed black people or blamed the government for supposedly giving black people advantages, that message was really potent. And it was a race-based message more than anything else. Yeah. Well, you know, you talk about history repeating itself, and you talk about the picture that circulated of him shaking hands with Art Jones, the vice chairman of the American Nazi Party. And this is the same Art Jones that ran for a GOP seat recently in a Chicago suburb, correct? That is correct. Yeah. Um, and so I, I thought that was in a, an episode called The Nazi and the Republicans. Um, and, it, and it tells the story of how really it focuses on how one woman tried to keep the GOP from becoming the party of the Nazis and the tough time she had to get the party to reject David Duke. That did not seem to be as tough a task this time around when Art Jones threw his hat into the ring. Or did you see, again, history repeating itself? Well, I think with Duke, again, he would just deny everything. Mm. I think if Duke had embraced being a Nazi, then I think it would have been relatively easier for the Republican Party to disavow him and distance themselves from him. And it's also worth noting that the National Republican Party did very strongly disavow Duke. True. You know, Lee True. Atwater was the chairman right. of the Republican Party. He's known as somebody who used race in very cynical ways uh, right. politically. And under his leadership, the National Republican Party, just in the strongest possible terms, said, we're not going to support him. We repudiate him. We want to excommunicate him. Right. It was more in the state of Louisiana that things were fraught because there was mm -hmm. this understanding by state party officials that Duke is building a movement here and the people mm -hmm. that are voting for him and that are supporting him, you know, could vote for other Republicans and we don't want to alienate him. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's also worth noting Beth Rickey's papers are in the AJC archive and we were able to study them. Which is a, really? It's a, it's a great uh, resource. Yeah. That, thank you for pointing that out. That's, that's fascinating. You talked about the reason why you did this series. You wanted to kind of just explore your own feeling of dislocation. And again, one interview I, I really liked and appreciated was the African-American professor, I believe she's a biologist, born and raised in Louisiana. You asked her how she was able to stay. She had been very outspoken about Duke's success or close success in, in elections. And I'm just curious if you were satisfied or if this series kind of satisfied some of your just feelings of dislocation. Yeah, her name is Michelle Bell Boissier, and she was really great. And I asked her the question that I had been asking myself and I had asked a bunch of other people, which is just, as you said, how do you think about this place as your home when 60% of white people in the state voted for him? for the U.S. Senate. And she talked very movingly about the work that she does. You know, she's a professor at a historically black college preparing people for careers that someone like David Duke might feel like they weren't equipped to do and mm -hmm. proving him wrong. And so that she finds that very, very comforting and, and satisfying. And I thought that was a great answer and one that 
hadn't occurred to me, but seems perfect and and apt. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, whenever you tell a story like this that is so fraught and, you know, that there's uplifting things you can pull out of it and there's depressing things you can pull out of it. And I think I came out of it at the end. My sense was the reason that David Duke was defeated ultimately wasn't that the people that voted for him were persuaded that they shouldn't do that, because I don't think that's actually what happened. Mm-hmm. I think what happened is that people, the people that opposed Duke came out in enormous numbers to say, this is not going to happen in our state, and we're not going to allow this to happen. And so is that an uplifting message about people coming together to stop it? Or is it a, a depressing message about the core base of support being unpersuadable? I don't really know. <laughs> but I, I think the truth is, like in all things, the truth is complicated. Yeah. Well, Josh, thank you so much uh, for this opportunity to talk to you about this series. And I encourage all of our listeners to find Slate's podcast, Slow Burn, and listen to all six episodes. You will have a hard time turning it off. So, Josh, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Now it's time for our closing segment, Shabbat Table Talk. And joining us at our Shabbat Table this week is Simone Rodin Benziken, the director of AJC Europe. Simone, when you're talking with your family at your Shabbat table this weekend, what are you going to be talking about? So actually, our Shabbat tables have started to grow again after a drop in coronavirus cases over the past month in France is once again getting smaller as the cases are growing again. So Shabbat will be small in a small setting with my husband and children who, of course, are falling my work closely and still really haven't figured out what I'm doing. (laughs) For them, it seems that it has gone from mom being constantly in meetings on the plane to mom constantly being on the phone and on Zoom. But more seriously, during Yom Kippur, we spoke a lot about Teshuvah and our capacity to change. The idea that we are not destined to somehow be forever what we are. And so I think we'll continue that topic by speaking about my work and more specifically about my work um, in France and on Hezbollah and on my hope that France, that President Macron will change. So as you know, France has held a position that has basically consisted in being the main expert, but also the main obstacle, preventing the EU from listing Hezbollah in its entirety as a terrorist organization. Now, France is, of course, not doing it just for the sake of doing it, but because it has believed it is right and it has had the long-held belief that its strategy is basically the right one. This held the belief that listing Hezbollah as a terrorist organization would destabilize Lebanon, that it would prevent France from speaking to Lebanon, and it would prevent France from having any kind of leverage. Now, as you know, France has had a very long and privileged relationship with Lebanon. This is why President Macron has invested considerable time and effort on Lebanon after the blast in August, traveling to Beirut twice and spending really, I don't know, countless hours with political actors on the ground. And this actually even included the meeting with Hezbollah members of the Lebanese parliament, which I obviously wasn't particularly happy about. But, and this is the big but, despite all of this effort, unfortunately to no avail. The French president had set deadline and this deadline for the Lebanese actors has basically run out. 
And those who have obstructed the process are indeed Hezbollah. They have, according to reports, insisted on getting the Ministry of Finance and other vital ministries and basically have blocked any kind of French efforts. So France finds itself in a tough spot. Macron has invested a huge amount of political capital, but the reality is that the strategy over the past 15 years has basically failed. And it is my hope that President Macron will both realize it and, again, make the necessary change. Considering Hezbollah as a legitimate interlocutor in the process, engaging its representatives in Lebanon has basically only led to the perpetuation of the problem. Lebanon has not become any more stable, quite to the contrary. The situation on the ground has deteriorated. The country is on the brink of basically disappearing. And the danger of a war with Israel is growing by the day as Hezbollah's only legitimacy is derived from opposing Israel. The reality is that France has not much leverage. Hezbollah has continued to endanger Lebanon by making regular incursions to Israel, but also by intervening in Syria. And the reality is that France could not bring Hezbollah not to block the political process that could potentially save Lebanon. Now, much of it has to do with the fact that France and others have refused to admit that Hezbollah can't be influenced, that it can't be reckoned with. The reality is that it is an Iranian organization that has held a grip on Lebanon for decades. It's a state within a state. It has used violence and intimidation to gain political power. And there's no way it's going to let go of this. So very recently there is some hope that Macron is actually changed. In an unprecedented press conference, Macron himself said, and I quote, in recent months, Hezbollah has maximized its weight by playing on ambiguity, an ambiguity that makes it both a militia, a terrorist group, and a political force. Hezbollah representatives must clarify their position. You cannot claim to be a political force of a democratic government by terrorizing with weapons. You cannot be around the table permanently if you do not keep your commitments around the table. And I unquote. So basically, as a conclusion, President Macron has always prided himself of the capacity to change, of the fact that he's a young man who has a capacity to change. But with change, comes the capacity to look reality in the face. This is the case if we want to change from within ourselves, whether it's spiritual or personal, but it's also the case in foreign policy. It's only by admitting one's mistakes, by looking reality in the face, even if we don't like it, then one can make the necessary changes. So I hope the change will occur and that France will finally, after decades of denial, confront the issue of Hezbollah. So that will be my Shabbat table talk. I think my kids will probably be very, very bored. No, Simone. Honestly, I think your kids will be proud. Once you explain what you've been up to, they'll realize their mom is doing courageous work. Thank you so much. You pointed out that Hezbollah is a proxy of Iran. Well, my family also will be talking about Iran and our hopes for a more just and peaceful existence for the Iranian people. Because at our Shabbat table, we will be talking about the Olympics. My son loves the Olympics. To this day, when he runs especially fast, he shouts Jamaica in honor of Usain Bolt and his Jamaican teammates in 2016. That year, the International Olympic Committee banned a number of Russian athletes for state-sponsored doping. The IOC also banned Kuwait, permitting nine of that country's athletes to compete under the Olympic flag. 
Now, AJC is calling on the IOC to ban Iran after the execution of 27-year-old national wrestling champion Navid Afkari. Afkari was arrested during Iran's 2018 protests and charged with insulting the supreme leader and waging war against God. Authorities tortured him into confessing to the murder of a security guard, and a kangaroo court sentenced him to death. The Olympic Charter specifically forbids retaliation against athletes for political reasons, and this is only the latest abuse of an athlete. Earlier this year, Kimia Alizadeh, a bronze medalist in Taekwondo and the only woman to ever win a medal for Iran, defected. She had been forced to wear a hijab during the competition. And last year, judo champion Saide Molali fled after he defied orders from Iran's regime to lose matches and drop out of competitions so as not to face Israeli opponents. Iran has been banned indefinitely from international judo competitions. The Olympics should consider doing the same. There is precedent. South Africa was banned from the Tokyo Games of 1964 until 1992 for its oppressive apartheid regime. Afghanistan was banned from the 2000 Sydney Games because of the Taliban's mistreatment of women. If the goal of the Olympic movement is to contribute to building a peaceful and better world, if its goal is to educate youth through sport practiced without discrimination of any kind, if its goal is to foster and promote the Olympic spirit, then this seems like such a no-brainer. So I hope the IOC listens to AJC and makes Tokyo memorable once again, as a place where the International Olympic Committee upheld its principles. Our children are watching. The Olympic spirit. That's what we'll be talking about at our Shabbat table this week. Sefi, what will you be discussing? In today's America, political affiliation is more important to some people than their religion, their nationality, their ethnicity. Their true tribe is either Team Red or Team Blue. And they know exactly what to think about political events or even events unrelated to politics by what their favorite politicians and political commentators say about them. And woe betide anyone who would say anything negative about their team. In today's hyper-polarized politics, someone who criticizes your team must be part of the other team. Is there even another option? This week, I saw one person on Twitter refer to AJC as, quote, a Republican front group, and another call us, quote, a mouthpiece for the DNC. In both instances, the tweeters were angry because we had pointed to objectionable things done by members of Team Red and Team Blue. First, an organization devoted to ensuring strong Jewish support for the Democratic Party released an ad comparing Trump to Hitler and the Republican Party to the Nazis. AJC has long believed that these kinds of Holocaust analogies are offensive, unhelpful, and lead to a diminution of the moral power of the Holocaust. That power should be marshaled to help fight anti-Semitism and hatred, not to score cheap political points against an opponent. So AJC spoke out and called for the organization to remove the ad. By the way, before this week, we had issued 10 similar callouts for Holocaust analogies in 2020. Nine of them were against Republicans. But our tweet was enough for numerous online critics to attack us, and for at least one to call us a Republican front group. Then came Tuesday night's presidential debate, in which President Trump refused to condemn white supremacy. For demanding that he come out strongly against some of his most hateful supporters, we were deemed, again, by at least one online critic, to be a mouthpiece for the Democratic Party. Some people, and 
Some organizations call out anti-Semitism when it's convenient. AJC calls out anti-Semitism when we see it. It's much less politically convenient, but also it saves Jewish lives and prevents anti-Semitism from being used as a political cudgel. There aren't many true nonpartisans left, but our society has never needed them more. I'll be musing about that at my Shabbat table. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify, or learn more at ajc.org slash peopleofthepod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at ajc.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producer is Kukong Do. Our assistant producer is Atara Lakritz. And our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod.